Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, the final episode of Everyday Law from the friendly studios of Dragon Digital Radio, Howard Community College in Columbia, Maryland. And my guests today are the stalwarts of the show, Alan Steinhorn and Ron Schwartz. Welcome back to the program, gentlemen. Thank you for having us, Bob. Good to be here, Bob. So by history, I met Alan in August of 1974, so he's a comparatively new acquaintance. I met Ron in January 1975, and we all lived on the same dorm floor in Garrett Hall at the University of Maryland. It was a dorm floor that had one, two, three, four, five rooms and spawned the three of us and a prior guest, Paul Newman. And we've all been incredibly close friends since then. And one of the real luxuries of having them as your best friends is that you can call upon them to address all manner of legal topics because they both truly are brilliant lawyers. And I'm really grateful to them that they've come on the program so many times. And so I guess the question is, how many times do you think you have been on this program? Not singly, but you know, sometimes in conjunction with others. Alan? I would think four or five times. All right. The answer is 15. Seriously. So, Ron, how many times do you think you've been on the program? I'd say four or five. It's seven. Jeez. There are a few other competitors for most frequent guests. CeCe Pays has been on five or six times. Jerry Buting's been on five or six times. And there's a number of other people who I'll address later in the program. Because I'm really grateful this show wouldn't be possible without the contributions of all these people. And uh, about a year ago, I was going to go and speak to the State Bar Association about podcasting. And I came up with a little pamphlet, and it's Bob's Rules. And it's, number one, if you want to have a podcast, call your friends. And I really have relied on my friends. Two, call your friends' friends. And it's another truism that a friend of Ron or Alan's can often be a good source of information and guests. Number three, have an idea what you want to talk about. And generally speaking, I've tried to do that. Number four, don't hesitate to veer off the path. And I've had a lot of shows where guests came in thinking they were going to talk about one thing and spent the entire show talking about something else. And finally, rule number five, don't hesitate to call strangers. They like attention too. And I have found gradually, and Alan has helped me with this a good deal, to have confidence that other people really want to come on the show. And as you compile a list of fairly impressive guests, judges and politicians and entrepreneurs and lawyers, there's a certain legitimacy to your program that I don't perceive exists, but others do. And the next thing you know, uh, like our last new guest was Judge Andrea Leahy, who was on from the Court of Appeals of Maryland a couple weeks ago. And she was on the show because it was recommended to her by Judge Michelle Houghton of the Supreme Court of Maryland, who's been on a number of times. And so to everyone who has recommended being on our show to another guest, thank you very much. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the most important issues of the day on this show now and historically. (sighs) Regrettably, so often that has proven to be President Donald J. Trump. And again today, I do have some semi-profound questions I intend to ask Alan and Ron But inevitably, the indictment of Donald Trump has sort of subsumed everything else, and it's something we've got to talk about today, and let's get right to it. Alan, what do you think? It's a remarkable time in our country's history. I lived through Watergate and was, I think, 17 or 18 when Watergate hit. And this actually seems worse to me than Watergate, which involved a president authorizing break-ins and 
doing criminal activity to win an election. In this case, we're talking about the security of our country, and it appears that Donald Trump may have concealed our nation's top secrets, nuclear issues, attack plans, defense plans, things that are some of our country's most important secrets, and it affects our national security in multiple ways. So this is a somewhat shocking development and one that will probably polarize the country even more. So, Ron, what do you think the prospects are for Donald Trump getting off on all of this? Well, I think um, drawing a friendly judge in Florida certainly helped his chances in the documents case. She was a very helpful judge in the early... And we're talking about Eileen Cannon. Eileen Cannon. She was assigned to Trump's original injunction case to try to get the uh, documents thrown out that were seized by a warrant. And she made many rulings in that case, including the appointing of a special master. And Ron, that that was a case where Donald Trump filed something with the court to try and stop a criminal investigation before there was ever an indictment. That's, that's correct. He filed an injunction, and she granted it, and she appointed a special master, which was unheard of in a criminal proceeding, to go through the documents. Now, she was reversed by a very conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals with Trump appointees on that panel. So she may be chastened to some degree, but she was appointed by Donald Trump very late in his term. She did not have a lot of trial experience. And so I think that drawing her as the trial judge was something that I'm sure the Trump defense team was very happy about. But I would also say that the chances of him getting off in the Georgia case are much lower. I think that's probably an open and shut case for election interference. He's on tape. That case is going to be tried in Fulton County, which is in Atlanta, which is not a pro-Trump jurisdiction. And uh, he's not likely to draw a judge as favorable as he drew in the documents case. So is the judge that influential, Alan? Can be. The judge could schedule the trial in a way that pushes it far into the future. She can delay things. She can make evidentiary rulings that some of the evidence that's needed to convict a defendant is not admissible. So to some degree, yes. On the other hand, the information I've read that's alleged in the indictment is so plentiful in terms of the actions that the former president took that I think he will be convicted of this. But it does change my perspective when I learned that a judge that made rulings in his first case that seemed to be contrary to the law and which the appellate court said was contrary to the law is now put in charge of one of the most important cases in the history of our country. Do you think that's a coincidence? I think it has to do with where they filed the charges. And there's been some criticism for them filing in Florida. However, the activities that are subject to the criminal complaint occurred in Florida. Former President Trump is not being charged with possessing classified information. He's being charged with concealing information. He's being charged with withholding information after it's been subject to a subpoena and request by the government. It's not a matter of him simply possessing confidential information. It's a matter of him concealing it and refusing to return it. It's a very different case than the cases involving Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Vice President Pence. There's also a couple counts of disclosing classified information also to yes, people which who are is, not entitled to see it. Which is very... I I don't know that we've ever had a president like President Trump 
but it appears that he, in some instances, used some of our nation's most important, highly guarded secrets to show off that he was in possession of them. There are two instances in the indictment where he has shown them to people, I believe at the Bedminster uh, Country Club he has in New Jersey, where he says, I didn't declassify these as president, so they're still highly confidential information, and you shouldn't see it, but here I'll show it to you. So I think one of the interesting things is the political cl climate is so different now than it was during Watergate. I think that if Watergate happened today, President Nixon would not have resigned and probably would, would, would have survived. I think that we have media now in this country that's stratified by people's political views. They're in their own silos. Conservatives watch Fox News and OAN. Liberals watch MSNBC. And everybody's in their own bubble. I think back in Watergate times, and I remember this, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they were considered sort of Bibles by everybody. And then you had essentially three networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC. And uh, that was how everybody got their news. Well, you also had the Fairness Doctrine back then. Well, yes, but I don't think that's so much as, as it is that there was essentially three television news outlets that were all sort of mainstream. and Right, but when you eliminate the fairness doctrine, you can now have networks like Fox that do not have to present both sides of an issue. Well, there's always been opinions, though, even mm -hmm. not the fairness doctrine. You could always have an editorial, and, and essentially, if you look at the evening news on cable, most of it is opinion, and I think cable news was also not bound by the fairness doctrine. That was simply well, for broadcast. There, there was no cable news. Right. There was no cable news, and that, that's what Back I'm saying. Back in 73. There were three networks. Mm -hmm. So the political climate is different. What the, do you the, think the odds are, Alan, that Trump gets convicted of things associated with the documents? I think it's about 75% likely, but I do believe there's a chance that he could be acquitted. He could also have a mistrial if simply one juror decides there, there is not a case here, they can refuse to convict. And in, uh, in the United States, we need a unanimous jury verdict. What about you, Ron? I think there's a very high chance of a hung jury. That's what I think. Okay. I so think in Dade, in Dade County. Th that's what I'm agreeing. In, in Dade County, it's, uh, well, even that South Florida district, even though it's more Democratic than Republican, it's nothing like Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Even if the evidence is overwhelming, there's something called jury nullification. If you recall, Marion Barry went to trial in Washington, D.C. on drug charges that seemed like an open and shut case. They had video. And they had video, and he wasn't convicted because... The jury in Washington, they loved Marion Barry, and they weren't willing to convict a beloved figure. And I think that's certainly possible in South Florida in the documents case. And also, one of the things that uh, former President Trump has probably been one of the best politicians in history about doing is that he has been able to present his point of view in a way that persuades people to his point of view. He is one of the greatest marketers of political ideas of my lifetime. I don't think anyone's ever been on the political stage that can persuade people of the things that he's persuaded them at. And what he and his allies have done is persuaded people that this is an unjustified prosecution because Hillary Clinton wasn't prosecuted or Joe Biden wasn't prosecuted. And if you put these thoughts in people's minds and they don't read the news and they don't pay as much attention as perhaps you and I do, Ron, I mean, we're from the Washington area. The company town is the government. We read the newspapers. You and I tend to consume a lot of news. But if you're going about your life and you're not consuming news eight hours a day, you might just hear your political leaders tell you this is a witch hunt. 
And I think they believe it, contrary to what the facts might support. Right. Most we, pe- we've never had that echo chamber before in our country's history. And most people in the country don't get the Washington Post delivered to their house every day. That's correct. So will this trial take place before the election? I think it will. Ron? 50-50. There's a pro-Trump judge that might very well postpone the case. There's going to be legal motions. They're going to take time. There could be what's called interlocutory appeals where uh, rulings on legal matters would go up to an appeals court before a trial, I think that the odds are likely that it's not going to be tried before the election. And and the reason that's important is there's some thinking that if President Trump or former President Trump were to be elected president, that he would have a self-pardon power. He is in charge of the executive branch, so arguably he's also in charge of the attorney general. He could tell him to stop the prosecution. And he could fire Mr. Smith. That's right. So let me move on to a couple other things. What do you think the odds are of additional prosecutions? You mentioned George Iran. Do you think that Trump will be prosecuted for other crimes in other places before the 2024 election? Yes or no? Yes. And where? The uh, prosecutor in Georgia has already put out intimations that there's going to be charges in July that get ready for public security. So I, I think he's almost certainly getting indicted in Georgia probably in the next 30 to 60 days. I think the matter in Washington, D.C. about the uh, incitement to the January 6th riot and the electoral, the scheme to have false electors, I think that's a more problematic case. I certainly think there's going to be indictments in that case, maybe Mark Meadows or other people, the lawyers, Mr. Eastman. I think that that's likely. I am not so sure that President Trump is going to be indicted in that case. I would say that's 50-50. On the Trump end of it? Yes. Where do you come down on that, Alan? I think the Georgia case is highly likely. If you read the Georgia statute about interfering with an election, it what President Trump appears to have done would fit the definition of the statute. But there's another potential criminal case that I think is real interesting. And I thought about this when I first heard about how much money former President Trump raised after the election. In the first two months after the election, former President Trump raised over about $200 million by claiming that the election had been stolen from him and asking his supporters to contribute money to help him fight the theft. Well, as we've learned over the last several months, uh, the Trump campaign knew that he had lost the election. And in fact, it has come out that the Trump campaign hired two companies and paid them millions of dollars to find fraud in the election. And both companies came back and said there was no fraud. Attorney General Bill Barr told President Trump, we've investigated it. There is no fraud. And yet, even after learning from everyone in his government that there was no fraud in the election sufficient to overturn the election results, he went out and said that there was a theft of the election and we need money to fight this fraud. Ladies and gentlemen, that's false representation. It's a bad fraud. That's a fraud itself to collect the money. And it was incredibly successful. They raised about $200 million based on this claim that we need to hire lawyers to challenge these cases in court. What's the first thing that former President Trump did after this most recent indictment was announced? He started fundraising again for legal fees. This man is supposedly a billionaire, but he needs money from the poor folk in these rural areas and and even the city areas that supported him to pay his legal fees. Well, if he's really a billionaire, why does he need hundreds of millions of dollars from others? Secondly, where did that money go? They haven't spent $200 million on lawyers. 
So where is that so money So is going? that something that's criminally prosecutable? Yes, absolutely. And in where fact, will that take place? Steve when? Bannon was indicted say the by same. the Justice Department for representing that he was going to build the wall. And people sent in millions and millions of dollars to him. And he represented that they would take no salaries, that they would use 100% of the funds to build the wall. Well, Steve Bannon was pardoned by President Trump, but two of the co-defendants that were charged with the same crimes were convicted in a court of law. So if you go on the radio or on the television or in any media setting and start appealing for money that you're going to use for legal fees, and it turns out, number one, the basis for the donations is a false representation. Number two, you're not using them for legal fees. You're using them for personal effects or personal uh, charges. That is all fraud, and I believe that's currently being investigated by the Justice Department. So do you see more prosecutions than the New York, Florida, and Georgia ones taking place with regard to President Trump specifically. I do. I think that there are going to be multiple ones. And one of the defenses that his supporters make is this is unprecedented to charge a former president. But it's also unprecedented to have a former president allegedly commit crimes that are alleged in these documents. The indictment, and I urge everyone to read it so you can decide for yourself whether this is just, as former President Trump calls it, a, a witch hunt or if we would allow our elected officials to do this. And I would also ask people that think that former President Trump is being unfairly treated, I'd like them to read the indictment and put the name Hillary Clinton every time you see Donald Trump. Or I'd like you to put Hunter Biden's name every time you see Donald Trump. And if you found out that Hillary Clinton had taken hundreds of boxes of documents with her, that she stored them in a public room, like the ballroom, which had thousands of people or had the access bathroom. to that. The bathroom. If you look in those pictures, I don't know why the government didn't do this, but if you look behind the shower curtain, you will see boxes stacked eight to 10 feet tall. It is directly behind the shower curtain. Why would anyone put dozens of boxes containing highly classified secrets in their bathroom? To hide them from the Justice Department is the answer. That is what it appears. And that's what's so different about this case and Joe Biden or Pence or Hillary Clinton. And I'll just point out one more thing, and perhaps I'm sounding a little bit biased in stating this. The uh, former president campaigned in 2016 on the chant, lock her up. He also talked about having someone in the Oval Office who would understand how important confidential information and top secret information was. And he implied that you can't have someone in the White House who disregards these rules. And then he goes and does this. It's just the ultimate irony that a man who campaigned on the importance of top secret information and keeping it secret would then take hundreds and hundreds of top secret documents, military plans, invasion plans. These are not casual documents. These are the crown jewels of the United States government. And I'll add one more thing. If you're a country that exchanges intelligence information with the United States, why would you ever do that again? If you know that your intelligence information might be released as it could have happened here and your agents are at risk. Does anyone know whether these documents were found by foreign agents? Because I know there have been people who were trying to get into Mar-a-Lago and successfully got into Mar-a-Lago who were like Chinese agents and stuff. You're and it sounds as though we don't, we don't know that. We, we don't know, and maybe the Justice Department does know. But I wanted to say one thing to what you were saying, Alan. As crazy and as shocking as the allegations are in this indictment, I spoke to somebody, a client of mine, last week, and I said, you know, 
they're almost certainly going to indict, indict Trump on the documents case. This was before the indictment came down, and he needs to be indicted for that. And the person looked at me, says, I agree with you, but they need to indict Hunter Biden also. And, I, you know, and you can say, well, that doesn't make any sense. What does what Hunter Biden do have anything to do with national security information? But people are in their silos. And the people that think that Trump is their hero, they don't want to hear about facts. They don't want to hear about obstruction of justice. They don't want to hear about moving boxes. They say he's the president of the United States. He could have this. He could do any any unfounded excuse that he makes they believe. And that's a large percentage of the country. So I, I that's maybe scary, but that's just the truth. So well, let's go back in time a little bit and ask the question. The first episode of this program was March 22nd, 2017. How many episodes in do you think we first mentioned Donald Trump? March 2017. M March 22nd, 2017 is the first episode, and it was with Alan. Second episode was with Ron. How many episodes in do you think Trump's name first came up? I think probably Alan mentioned it on the first episode. That was what I would bet. I know we didn't talk about it on my second episode. Episode 13, 13 in September. And it's interesting looking back. What do you think the subject matter was in September 2017? The Mueller report. I would agree. It was the pardon of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. It was dreamers. We were talking about the dreamers and Trump messing with them. We were talking about the Mueller report, but it was predominantly Joe Arpaio. And there was discussion. The word impeachment came up in the context of that. And most interesting, there was a discussion about Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, and that gang of people, and whether they would ultimately get pardons, which was addressed November 23rd, 2020, when they were all pardoned, and we chatted about it again. Well, it seems to me that if you are a president that holds out pardons to people, who might commit criminal acts, you might be able to get people to do criminal acts for you. Does seem that way. So what's the most significant legal development that's taken place during your careers? Ron, you've been a lawyer for 42 years, Alan, 37 years. What would you cite as the most significant legal development? I, I think Citizens United and Roe v. Wade. It's hard for me to pick between the two. Or Dobbs, yeah, not Roe. Yeah, I think United. in the national scheme, th those two things are, are huge cases. Um, I think in the development of the law, and this is maybe my bias here, but I, I think Title IX, really in 2014, the entire landscape changed on college campuses. And, uh, and something that never was involved with students that had far-reaching implications for their lives and careers started, and now it's become really a very important aspect of college life. I mean, I, I think Roe versus Wade and not being able to get Roe an abortion Wade is before your career I'm, I'm, right. That that that's only changed in the last few months Dobbs. since Dobbs, and and we'll see how that plays out. I, I certainly in in many states where abortion has been made illegal, that's been a huge change in in the lives of people. But but in I mean, drunk driving's laws have changed over the course of my career. They become more stringent. But I mean, stringent. that seems insignificant but, but compared that, to these other but, things. Uh, but, you know, from well, so my point of view, Title IX is a big change in the law. It's something new that didn't exist previously. Well, Citizens United allowed corporations to contribute to uh, 
political campaigns in ways that disguise the contributors. So you started having large amounts of dark money, and there's a book that Jane Meyer wrote called Dark Money that describes what happened. And starting in the 80s, you saw some of these very conservative, mega-wealthy families group together and start trying to influence campaigns. And when United, uh, when Citizens United was ruled by the Supreme Court saying the corporations could basically contribute unlimited amounts of money to these uh, political action committees, you started seeing changes in the way that Politics was presented to the American. So, what public. about gun laws? I mean, what about the Supreme Court essentially saying That's people another are much, good one. you know, more likely to be able to have a gun under all circumstances? I think that's a change, though. I, w I would say that you know we've always had in in many states uh, pretty liberal gun laws in the United States. Uh, I don't know that the gun laws have changed so much in Maryland, for example. It depends on what state you live in, but. We're in the home stretch now, so I got to move you along a little bit more quickly. How has the practice of law changed during your career, Alan? Well, we do a lot of trial work that involves personal injury litigation, and in that sphere, it's changed dramatically. Over the last 30 years, corporations that provide insurance to drivers have formulated, or formed, I should say, house counsel operations. So you now have corporation attorneys defending cases in court and basically not protecting their insureds anymore. There's been a dramatic change in the way these cases are handled. There's been a dramatic change in the amounts of money insurance companies are paying on these claims. And if you're a driver insured by one of the major insurance companies that offers very low rates, you're more likely to be sued in a car accident than you would have been 20, 30 years ago. How about you, Ron? You know, I think a big change is how uh, lawyers practice. I'll second that, Ron. I, I think that when I first started practicing, you didn't really feel like you had to put everything in writing all the time. You know, you could talk to a lawyer even on the other side and, and basically what you said was good. I, I think there's always been... That's still true to some degree, depending on the lawyer, but I think there's been so many more lawyers that have come out of law school, and a lot of hiring and a lot of sort of aggressiveness in the law. I think it's not as collegial as it was in the, in the early 80s. I don't think it's terrible change, but I noticed that um, in many areas of the law, things are just a little bit more cutthroat than they used to be. I would agree with that. So I'm going to have to run you both off from a little commentary because I do want to sum up thanks to so many people who have contributed to this show across time. Uh, like the two of you, I am a byproduct of the 20th century. And when I was asked to do a podcast here at HCC back in March of 2017, I really didn't have any sense of what a podcast was per se. I had listened to Sarah Koenig's wonderful serial podcast, courtesy of my daughter, but you know, I thought of media as being television, radio, film, that kind of thing. And so being asked to come in and regularly provide something that should be informative and perhaps a little entertaining was something that I just didn't really have any sense of how to go about it. And apropos what I said earlier about relying on your friends, I relied on you guys and a number of other people with whom I've been close across the years to help me provide content. And one of the things I kind of realized is that across time, there were sort of categories that evolved on this show. And I, I described them as first as pioneers. There's Alan and Ron and Cece and Judge Sharon Kelsey, Jerry Buting, Judge Lynn Battaglia, Judge Michelle Houghton, 
uh, state's attorney Rich Gibson, lawyer Dave Herrick, and all of those people came on early and I think took a risk because you don't know when you're coming on this show that it will be a competently done thing, at least from my end. I know from Chris's end, she does an excellent job. And all of those people took a risk and all of them seemed to enjoy it. All of it, them recommended me to other people. I then got interested in having various of the governance people on. So I had the then County Executive Alan Kittleman. I had his successor, Calvin Ball. I had Attorney General Brian Frosch. I had the Comptroller, uh, Pete Francho. I had Senator Katie Fry Hester. I had the Treasurer, Nancy Kopp. I had Kim Oldham, who was running for state's attorney at the time against Rich Gibson. And I had our dear friend, Paul Newman, who's been a, a government authority in Arizona. And then I kind of had the judges category with Judge Kelsey, Judge Battaglia, Judge John Buran, uh, Judge Kathy Cox, Judge Dan Friedman, Michelle Houghton, Judge Steve Platt, Judge Jeffrey Russell, Judge Mark Skirty, Judge Kathy Stilling, also prominent criminal defense lawyer, Judge Andrea Leahy, Judge Catherine Grafe, and Judge Paul Grimm. And again, all of those people are sort of different conversations than you have with a governmental type or with lawyer types. And all of them had kind words about the show to others, which in turn led them to come on the program. We had public interest lawyers, Mark Bookman, who's a stalwart against the death penalty in Pennsylvania. We had Bernie Taylor on, who was talking about victims' rights. We had an army of people from the Maryland State Bar Association who are helping Maryland Volunteer Lawyer Service, Susan Francis, Sharon Goldsmith, Rena Shah. We had the founder of the National Organization to Reform Marijuana Laws, Keith Strupon. We had Peer, Tim Whitehouse, who's engaged in environmental justice for whistleblowers. We had Lisa Kaplan. We had a whole series of other academics on. We had Professor Mark Witte. We had Professor Dave Allen, Professor Maura Grossman. We had Keevon Bell and Jyla Bennett. We had a lot of people on who were going to talk about topics that were sort of more intellectual in some respects. And there was an awful lot of effort that had to go into doing those programs to just get up to speed on what NFTs were and what issues were involved in artificial intelligence being introduced into evidence at trial. Judge Grimm and Professor Grossman had a fascinating show about that and it entailed reading you know, a 100-page law review article that was, for the most part, incomprehensible to me just to get up to speed with them. Finally, we had a whole series of shows with criminal defense lawyers on. We had Jeff Ray from Ocean City on. We had Ian Anthony, who was a public defender here. We had Mark Bookman on. We had Jerry Buting on multiple times. And we had Justin Brown, who was Adnan Syed's lawyer on. So the show really went in directions that I never could have anticipated at the beginning. We're now doing the final show, and I'm going to sign off. And I don't know where the show is going to go from here. But I am grateful to Chris and Matt Trudell and all the people at Howard Community College for uh, allowing me to do this. I'm grateful to my wife, Lisa. I'm grateful to Ron's wife, Sue, who's here in the studio today. There are innumerable people who have supported the show, and I thank them all. And I say, this has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.